Jesus walks on water. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I am the bread of life. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there were that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the work of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? The work, what, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Thank you, Bianca, I'll take that for you. All right, so good morning, church. It's good to see you today. Hey, if you're new in here, I see a couple new faces. My name is JT. I am one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful that everybody's here today. Um, we're getting ready to jump back into John in a second, and I'm really pumped about that. If you came and didn't get our message, we were going to do our Caring Well um, message today. Um, and we're going to do that in the future, but because um, so many of our leadership in particular was out with COVID, which I think most of them are back, most of them healed, um, are healed up from that today, including me. Um, it's been about three weeks for me. Um, we're, we're actually kind of moving into superhuman territory in our church because so many people have had it. So I'm really excited about that. Um, we can just gather and not work, worry about it for most of us in the room. Um, but we are going to reschedule that as soon as possible. We wanted to kind of wait and, and ride this wave and see how long it lasted uh, and how, many, how long our people were going to be sick before we rescheduled our Caring Well Sunday, our baby dedication Sunday. We want to get that back on the schedule ASAP. We're going to talk about that this week because we know a lot of your families want to come and join in that. And so we want to get it on the calendar as soon as we can and far enough out, but not too far because it's been like, now almost a year and a half since we did baby dedications. There might be like 40 kids up here. It's going to be crazy. Uh, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be like the whole service, just handing out Bibles and certificates for baby dedication. Um, and that would be fine because it's a great day. But anyway, I don't want to derail already. Um, so we will reschedule those things and let you know ASAP. Um, but the good news is we get to back, um, jump back into John. One other thing I said when um, we were in the midst of the, the COVID hit and post-Christmas, and there was like 19 people here, so I'm going to say it again. Um, uh, here's what, something I want you to consider. I want you to start, I want you to at least consider not using your phones at church anymore for your Bible. I use my phone for the Bible. I'm like, well, hear me. Nothing wrong with using your phone. What a privilege, what a blessing, what an incredible thing that we have. Not only um, the Bible anywhere we go all the time, but some of the greatest sermons, some of the greatest works, some of the greatest things ever written, we can access on our phone in a minute. That is an amazing thing, right? It's incredible. Like some of the... Um, Man, you know how much easier it is to be a pastor and do research compared to what they did in the 1800s? It's just unbelievable. Um, so I'm not knocking technology. It's a good thing. Um, but what I do know, what I've seen, and especially when I stand in the back, what I've seen is our phones are incredibly distracting to, uh, to all of us all the time, and in particular in service. And so the reason I'm asking you to at least consider start bringing a paper Bible is not because it's more holy or not because it's better, but because... If a text pops up, an email pops up, social media pops up, we just almost can't help but do this. 
Even if you don't click over, which honestly, a lot of you do, I think, right? I'm, and I'm not calling anybody out. I haven't been watching, right? But I think a lot of us can't help but know what that text or email is. But even it, it, when it pops up, you look down. And so what I've, actually somebody else in our church brought this up to me as, an, as a thought, and I think they were right. Um, what we're really asking for is an hour, hour and a half, once a week, to be fully and completely focused on the Lord as a family together, right? And if our phones are in any way, in any way at all, distracting us from that, man, there's an easy solution to that. Let's just start using our paper, paper Bibles again while we're here. Hey, also maybe while you're in life group, so that we can focus during that time just on the Lord. Is that, does that make sense? Is that fair? Yeah, I didn't want this to be a big like conviction, like, oh, your phones are a bad thing. They're, they can be, but they can also be a huge blessing. But like, just consider that. If I see you with your phone next week, I'm not going to be like, why are they using their phone, right? If your phone's not a distraction, then fantastic. Honestly, to be honest, my phone's not much of a distraction. When I get anything pop up my phone, I just ignore it when Brandon or, or Tony or whoever else is preaching. Um, but that has taken a lot of self-discipline and a lot of work for me to know that. And by the way, I've deleted almost all social media, YouTube, everything on my phone is basically not there anymore. Um, so I don't get distracted um, by those things in my life. But that's a whole nother sermon, a whole different thing. Okay, so um, with that, let's jump back into John this re week. I'm really excited um, because what, what better... Um, for a church that really centers our whole church on God's salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, to be in a book, the Gospel of John, that is arguably the most Jesus-centered book in the entire Bible. And all of the New Testament is extremely Jesus-centered, but many people think this is the most Jesus-centered book in the entire Bible. And so if you're kind of unfamiliar with the Bible, when we say the Gospels, we mean the, four, the first four books of the Bible that are just all about Jesus's life. And so John is one of those four Gospels. It's actually the fourth Gospel in, in the New Testament. And John was one of Jesus' disciples, one of his 12 guys that followed him around and learned from him. We'll also talk about John the Baptist in a minute. That's a different guy, right? But we're talking about John, one of Jesus' disciples who wrote this book. And what's nice about this book is we don't have to wonder what it's about, right? John told us exactly what this book is about. It's my one slide for today. You got it, Denver? You actually have it? It's John 20, 31. Let me see if we got it, because I forgot. There it is. This is what the book is about. But these things, the things written in this book, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. This is what it's about, right? To know and to believe in Jesus. That's why we called this sermon series, To Know and Believe. We weren't trying to come up with some clever tagline, but we all sat down and thought, what's this book about? Well, it's to know Jesus and to believe in him and have eternal life. That's what it's about. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. And so with our passage today, we're going to dive right back into the deep end, right back into the deep end of Christ and his ministry and his mission on this earth to bring the kingdom of God. But before we get to that, I know it's been a while for all of us, and then there's some new people in the room. So let me give you just a little context, a little recap of where we've been in the series so far. So, so far we've seen Jesus come onto the scene. We saw his cousin, John the Baptist, prepare the way for him, prepare the way for the Messiah to come, just as it was prophesied in the Old Testament in the book of Micah, that there would be one come in the spirit of Elijah that would prepare the way for the Christ, which was John the Baptist. And he did, we saw him do that. And then we, we saw Jesus um, start to teach, begin his ministry. And slowly but surely, the, the, we saw the crowds start to gather. The, the crowds start to murmur about who is this guy? Could he be a prophet? Could he be the king? Could he be the Messiah? And through that process, we've seen Jesus start to really reveal what his mission truly is. And to the surprise of the Jewish people, what we're seeing very quickly in his ministry is that he's not come just for the Jewish people, which Jesus is a Jew, right? And he came through the line of Jewish people and Jewish kings, but he shows quickly that he's not there just for the Jewish people, but all people. Now he is there for the Jews. We, we saw that clearly in John 3 when he had that conversation with the, the super religious leader Nicodemus, who's actually pretty high up in, in when it comes to religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he has a conversation with him and, and really shares with him his mission and, and what's going on and how he can be saved. And so we see that he's absolutely coming for the Jews, even the religious elite that he has a hard time with. But then we see Jesus also share who he is with the woman at the well. Remember her? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. A Samaritan woman. If you're not familiar with the, the history, Samaritan women were, Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They, they, they would call them enemies or maybe even dogs. And not only that, but this woman was an outcast. 
And so Jesus comes to this outcast Samaritan woman. One of the most beautiful things about Scripture, we see Jesus go to the most lowly. He didn't go, yes, he talked to Nicodemus, the powerful guy, but he also went to the most lowly, almost possible. And the first person he literally says, like just lays it out, I am the Messiah, I am he, is this woman. You think you're too low for Christ? You think you've gone too far? This is who he came for. And he shares with this woman, this Samaritan outcast woman, who he is. And she believes. And not only that, remember what she did? She ran back to her town and started telling other people about, hey, I found the Messiah. He's here. Come see him. And then like a whole town basically gets saved because of the testimony of an outcast Samaritan woman. This is where the gospel really starts to spread. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? That's how Jesus worked. He didn't go to the kings. He went to women, to people like this, because God is close to the lowly, to the poor, to the impoverished, to the broken, to the hurting. That's who God's heart is drawn to, and it's a beautiful, beautiful truth. So we've seen that, that Jesus came for all people, no matter where you came from, no matter what your background, and even if you think you're the most lowly Christian who knows almost nothing, all this woman, woman knew was that Jesus was the Messiah, and it was enough for people to be saved. That's amazing, right? That's amazing. So make no mistake, by the time we, um, oh wait, let me, I want to skip ahead. So not only did we see who Jesus came for and kind of his mission, we also saw um, a few of Jesus' seven great miracles in John that prove who he is. Right now, Jesus did a lot more than seven miracles, but in John, there's seven big ones that are pointing through who Jesus Christ is. So does anybody remember what the first miracle was? I know TJ does, anybody else? The water into wine, right? TJ actually taught on it. We do preaching symposiums, and, and TJ taught on that. So he's gonna, obviously going to remember, and he did a great job. Um, you'll probably be hearing TJ teach up here um, in the not crazy distant future. Um, God's gifted him to teach, but sorry to just throw that out, TJ, right here. But anyway, um, water into wine. Does, now, if you get the second one, I'm going to be impressed. Did anybody remember what the second great miracle was? So close. That's three. It's the one that kind of, it's the healing of the nobleman's son. You remember that one? Where the nobleman came up and said, will you heal my son? And he, and, and he, wasn't, even, he wasn't even who he was supposed to be. Like, he was just some, some nobleman guy. And Jesus says, he's healed. He traveled a day home and then found out his son had healed. Jesus had healed him right then. Because he said, yeah, your son started getting better about a day ago. Amazing. Right? And then the second one, what was, or that was the second one. Third one, Cal? The healing of the lame man at the pool who couldn't walk. And Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. And the dude that's been paralyzed his entire life stands up, picks up his mat, and walks home. Unbelievable. And then what's the fourth one? It's the big one. It's the one that gives us our context for today. Did, what? Yeah, oh, your husband preached on it. That's not, that's not fair. <laughs> the feeding of the 5,000, right? Like the more than the 5,000, right? Jesus is teaching and all these people come. He's kind of become this rock star. All these people come and he feeds 5,000 people with just um, a few fishes and a few loaves of bread that some, some boy happened to have. Amazing. So make no mistake, at the start of chapter 6, with, with um, people beginning to treat Jesus as a rock star, as maybe a prophet, maybe even more than that, that, that they may be treating him as that he might be the political king that they wanted from the line of David that would set them free from the oppre their oppressive rule of their enemies, in particular Rome. But by the start of this chapter, people are starting to talk like this, think like this. But by the end of the chapter, because of Jesus' own words, because of what Jesus says, right? Because of what he said and did, they thought he was a rock star. But also by the end of the chapter, because of what he said and did, you know, most everyone will have left him. Almost everyone abandons him. This huge crowd by the end. Why? Well, that's what we're going to get to over the next few weeks in John 6. We're going to be here a while. This is a very important chapter. So today what we're going to do is we're going to pick it up in verse 16 where Bianca started. And it's the evening, right? It's the evening of the time when Jesus taught and then one of the most unbelievable miracles happened, the feeding of the 5,000 with virtually nothing. It's that, that evening. And what we're going to see right from the start is Jesus is going to roll right into his fifth miracle, right? We're going to get to that right away. You probably saw it if you're paying attention when Bianca read. And it's a memorable, memorable one. But um, through, the, through the rest of the story today, not just the miracle, but through the rest of the story, we're going to be forced to kind of ask um, this question. Why do I really follow Jesus? Or maybe a different question. Who is Jesus to me, really? Who, who is Jesus to you? That's where we're going today. That's the question we're going to be forced into today. So 
Let's take these things one at a time. Let's pick it up with, uh, in verse 16, with Jesus' fifth great miracle, the walking on water. Let's read it one more time. In verse, chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became, became rough because of a, a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So what it looks like is, is after all of the craziness of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the, well, we say 5,000, it's 5,000 plus, we think 5,000 men, but a lot of people, a, a huge crowd, after feeding them all, that night the disciples decided to slip away, right? Just slip away from all the craziness and head towards Capernaum, which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and so they're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And to get to Capernaum, it's about five to six miles, which kind of gives you context. When we say the Sea of Galilee, it's not like the Mediterranean Sea. It's kind of like a big lake but they, they call it a sea. So it's about five or six miles a, a, across. Now, we know from the Gospel of Mark, right? There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. In the Gospel of Mark, it retells this story also. And um, we know from that story, the reason Jesus didn't go with them is he went up on the mountain to pray. And as we're not going to spend time, we could do a whole sermon on that, right? But um, just remember, the man who was actually saving the world still got, took time away from what he was doing from his mission to spend time with his father, to have Sabbath, to have rest, to be with his father. Maybe it's okay that you take time to step away from everything and to take Sabbath rest and to be with your father, to be with your Lord, to be with your king, to refresh, to renew, to worship, to center your life back on him, right? It, we, so I, as you may have heard me say before, sometimes we act like what we're doing is so important. We're saving the world, but the guy who was actually saving the world actually took time, right? Um, like, take that seriously, Take that seriously to step away and follow in the example of Jesus. So the disciples leave, and they probably assume Jesus is not going to join them for, uh, for a while because they took the last boat. We know from the story that he took the last boat, the only boat. Now, when the disciples were crossing the sea, you see from the story, it got a little bit scary, and it probably got scary for a couple of reasons. One, I don't know if you know this, but the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. Can you imagine that? So it's, it's really low. And so what would happen on the Sea of Galilee is these these warm or these cold winds from more of the highlands from the higher places would swoop down into this low land of the Sea of Galilee and it would combine with the warm moist air over the Sea of Galilee and it would cause these huge storms and they would come on quickly and these huge squalls and these huge waves. So even though it was a small lake, right, like, like a Stockton sized type of lake type of sea, these huge storms would come and they could get really, they could get really, really scary, really, really terrifying. Not only that, knowing the context of, of the Sea of Galilee being a scary place, in the ancient world, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the sea kind of represented chaos and fear and darkness. And if you think about it, right, in that, that context, and you're out in the middle of a, a sea like this that can go, go crazy, um, that is a scary thing, right? You want to feel small, even if you're on like a gigantic cruise ship, which is some of the safest ships in the world, right? If you're, if you're out on a cruise ship in a giant storm, it's a scary thing even today. Can you imagine the boats back then? And so the sea kind of represented this. We can see this even clearly um, if you've ever read Revelation 21 or 22, like at the end, when it says all things are new, it says the sea will be what? Anybody know? No more. What a weird thing to say, right? When God renews all things, the sea will be no more. I, I, I don't know this, right? This is conjecture. You ready? This is me stepping away. This is what I think. I don't think that means there's not going to be any water in heaven or any bodies of water because he's going to renew the earth. What I mean is that the terror that comes with the sea, the fear, the darkness, the chaos, the death that the sea represents will be no more. The sea will be at peace. The water will be at peace. We don't have to fear those things anymore because God will be in complete control of those and renew all things. Maybe the sea will be gone. Maybe he literally means that. Or maybe it just means what the sea represented for so many people will be no more because there will be no more fear. There'll be no more chaos in this world. But either way, the disciples are out on the sea. They're only about halfway, three or four miles into a six-mile trip, and this storm hits, and it probably was really scary and really, and really terrifying, um, and they were in a little bit of trouble. And then what happens? They see some guy walking on the water, and they're frightened. And we know that they didn't recognize it as Jesus because one, Jesus had to say that it's me. But we know again from the gospel of Mark that records the story is that they thought it was a ghost. 
They literally thought it was a ghost. Now, some of us might be like, give the disciples a hard time, like, wait, you thought it was a ghost? Really? Right? But, but think about this for a second. Jesus walking on the water is a part of our vernacular in our culture. Have you, you know what I'm talking about? Even people that aren't believers that don't even know the Bible might say, oh, so I guess you think you walk on water, huh? Right? What does that mean? That you think you're perfect because they don't even know, they probably don't even know that that's pointing back to Jesus who was perfect, who walked on water. They had absolutely no context whatsoever that this was even possible. People don't walk on water. No one walks on water. That doesn't happen except for this one time with Jesus Christ, right? And so they had no context to, to think that Jesus would be walking on the water towards them. But so they're, they're terrified. You'd have been terrified. I would have been terrified. What in the world is happening right now? Imagine it. In the middle of a storm, somebody walking on the sea towards you freak you out. And so they're freaked out for lots of reasons. And then what does Jesus say? It is I. Do not be afraid. And he walks up to the boat and they welcome him and they're not afraid anymore. They, like, they joyfully take him into the boat after Jesus had just done the impossible. It is I, do not be afraid. Now, it's, a, it's an amazing thing, right? Jesus walking on the water. Another thing to, to prove who he is, but it's more than just another miracle. It's more than just this thing. The Bible makes very clear over and over, particularly in the Old Testament, that only God has power over creation. And in, in, in places like Psalm 89.9 and other places in the Psalms, it, it specifically says that only God has the power over the wind and the waves. Only God can control these things, and he does control these things. So this is more than just a miracle. This is Jesus declaring to them that he's more than just a prophet, right? He's more than just a good teacher, that he is the one that controls the wind and the waves. He is the master over the storms. He is a ma the master over all creation. Not only that, but... Um, they seem to be immediately at the seashore. Did you pick up on that? People always focus the, on the fact that he walked on water for good reason. I mean, that's, that's crazy, right? But then it says they're immediately at the seashore. It uses that word immediately. So that seems to be a part of this miracle of the things that Jesus did. This is Jesus displaying that he not only has the power reserved for God, but that he is God himself that he is the I am. So when he says it is I, he's not saying in this moment, he's really just saying it is I. But it is also him declaring in what he is doing and how he's approaching this, that he is the I am. So also, he's saying that in him and through him, even in situations in this life, even in situations that seem the most dangerous, the most dark, the most chaotic, the most out of control, we can know that God is in control. Now, some people want to make this passage all about that. That's not really what this is. It's about God, declare, Jesus declaring who he is. But it also gives us an example to follow. Because in this life, there is a lot of chaos, isn't there? And there's just darkness. And there's just things that are out of control. And we talked about this last week. We like to think that we're in control, that we can hold on to control, that we can, we can control what happens in our lives, that we can control our sickness, we can control what happens in our country, that we can, we don't have control over anything. Anything in your life can change or be taken away like that. And this last two years has proven it. We do not, any control we think we have is just an illusion until something in this world changes. But even in that, we don't have to fear, church. Because our Savior is with us in times of fear. Not only that, he says, hey, listen, do not fear. Do not fear, for I have given you a spirit of power and love and self-control. Don't fear. Do not fear, because I have not given you a spirit of fear, but I've given you a spirit of adoption as my sons, as my, as my own children. So you can cry out to me, Abba, which means Father. You can cry out to me, and I'm here, and I'm there, and I'm with you. You don't have to fear. Do not fear, for I am with you. This is who Jesus is. This is who our God is. Do not be afraid, church. So many of us given to, especially in the last couple of years, given to the fear, given to the worry. Listen, fear and worry is just another way of you trying to control things. That's what, different ends of the spectrum, fear and anger. They're both you trying to control things that are uncontrollable. Don't try. You have a sovereign king who controls all of creation, who controls the wind and the waves and the storms and the chaos and the darkness. And he is saying, listen, it is I, the I am, I am with you. Do not be afraid. It, some of us, if only we, some of us feel like if only we could have Jesus like the disciples did. In their moment of fear, he was there saying, yes, I don't be afraid. And they had joy. They had peace. But Jesus told us, it's to my advantage that I left. Because when I left, I sent you the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is just, was just one man. He couldn't be with everybody at all times, but the Holy Spirit is always with you, crying out, it is I, do not be afraid. We don't have to be afraid, church, for our God is in control. This is God, this is Jesus revealing to us once again who he is, that he's more than a prophet, that he is the I am. But it's not just his disciples that he's going to reveal himself to today. Keep reading in verse 22. Chapter 6, verse 22. We'll read through verse 26. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread, the bread of the 5,000, after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Okay, so the people know that Jesus didn't go with his disciples, right? And so it's the next day, and the disciples um, are gone, but Jesus isn't there. It's, it's probably the reason that a lot of them stayed the night and they stayed there. After, you can imagine, after seeing something miraculous happen, like the feeding of the 5,000 people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread, you might want to stick around too to see what's going to happen next, right? Might, might be a little bit enthralled with what the heck is this guy? Who is this guy? Is he, is he the king? Is he the prophet? What is happening that he can do these things? So they stuck around. But the next day, they noticed that that, yeah, they knew the disciples were gone, but Jesus is gone too, and there's no other boats. So they have no idea where he went or how he got there. But then, just by chance, I guess, some boats from Tiberias show up, and I don't know, I, I don't know what happened here. I don't know if they like, paid them to, to take them, or it was family and friends, or they're just doing them a favor, or they were, they were they'd given testimony to what Jesus Christ did, and the people are like, let's get, get on the boats, let's go. But no matter, no matter how it looked, they got on the boats from Tiberias, and they sailed across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum to follow Jesus really to follow where the disciples went looking for Jesus. So they get there. And what's the first thing they ask? Rabbi, again, teacher, how in the world did you get over here? How did you get here? But did Jesus answer the question? Do you see it? Did he answer it? It's a pretty simple question. How did you get here? Did he answer it? No. As Jesus did with the woman at the well, as Jesus did with Nicodemus, the religious leader, as he did with so many others. Jesus just has this way to see past the question, past what people are actually saying, and get right to the heart of it, right to their heart. It's an example that we should follow when we're discipling other people. Don't always listen to what they're saying right now. Keep listening so that we can get to the heart of it, because that's what Jesus did. And he, what happens is Jesus responds with, when they ask, how did you get here? He basically says to them, you're not here for that. You're here because I gave you bread and doesn't answer it at all. In other words, here's, here's what he's saying. Listen, you should have been paying attention to what you have seen and you should have been paying attention to what it means. Instead, you are more concerned with what I can give you or what I can display for you. You're more interested in the bread, the miracle of the bread than what the miracle actually points to. Listen, Jesus is using, listen, he is using miracles to point to the truth of, he, of who he is. Absolutely. The seven great miracles in John, it's a very important part of his ministry. But, but in the end, the miracles themselves are not the answer, are they? They're not the point of this, are they? What is the point? What is the answer? Jesus is calling them out because the miracles and signs should have been about faith. What's the name of this series? That's what this is about. Knowing who Christ is, seeing who he is, and having faith, and in believing in who he is. Believing in faith. But Jesus knows, he hears their questions, and he knows what they're actually asking, what they're actually after, because he gets to the heart of it. For them, it's not about faith. But it's about the experience. That's why most of them are here. It's about the experience. It's about what they're going to get out of it. It's about how all of this is making them feel. Do you see the danger that we get in here? Like, make, like, please have emotions about God. Be excited. Fall in love with God. Be excited about what God is doing. Man, be devastated with things in your life. Like, feel things. Yes and amen. But that's what they're making. This is what this is about. 
what they can get or how it makes them feel. Because if you look at the miracles so far, it's been obvious that Jesus doesn't want everyone to know all the miracles that he's, he's doing. He doesn't want it all to be known. Now, if those miracles are there to help prove who he is, why in the world would Jesus do that? Why would he actually hide from some people some of his miracles? Because he knows that miracles that are done for people with open hearts to hear what they're for, why he's doing it, who he is, man, those are a good thing. But to those who aren't ready to receive the truth, hear me, the miracles can be a corrosive thing. They can be a corrosive thing. And Jesus knew that people weren't really ready to hear the truth yet. They weren't really to, ready to know who he is. Because for them, it was still about them having a full stomach. Or about seeing something amazing. It, it was about eating the bread and seeing something incredible instead of being about what the bread was actually pointing to, what the bread was actually revealing about who God is. And that's what the rest of this passage is about, what the bread was pointing to, what they should have seen. Read in verse 27. Chapter 6, verse 27, and let's finish out our passage for today. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Does that, real quick, does that remind anybody of anything else that Jesus said? What did he say to the woman at the well? Don't long for this water. Long for the water that will well up inside of you to eternal life. You see, Jesus is saying the same thing. The bread, the water wasn't really about the water. The bread is not really about the bread. Verse 27 again. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they, the people, said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who, has sent, who he has sent, who the Father has sent. Verse 30, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Okay, so this passage really introduces or is reintroducing a couple big themes. We're going to talk about this one in a minute, but one of the big themes of, of this book is that Jesus was sent, right? Sent from heaven to us, major theme of John. One of the other major themes is that Jesus is the bread of life. And really, Jesus being the bread of life will really lead us into the next three sermons, right? The next three sermons. That's a major thing that goes through the rest of this chapter. But before we get to that, before we really dive into him being the bread of life, Jesus is saying something really important here. Jesus is trying to get them to see that he, the Son of Man, this is a title that Jesus has already claimed multiple times in John. If you remember, it comes from Daniel. And in Daniel, there's a prophecy of a Messiah that will come that will rule and reign forever over all things, all people, right? Jesus has claimed this title. That's why it's one of the reasons the Pharisees wanted to kill him, because he's claiming things like this. They know what it means. And so he says that he, says that he the Son of Man, the one who the Father has set his seal on, that has put his promise on, that has put his covenant on, right? That, that the one that at his baptism, God said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. This is who my seal is on. The one that God has sent to them is the one who can give them eternal life. At this point, at this point in the conversation, it should be pretty clear to them what Jesus is saying. Because in verse, 20 says, verse 27, he says that he... He says that the bread from heaven is the way to eternal life and that the Son of Man himself can give it to them. In verse 29, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he, the Father, has sent. That's, listen, they ask, what work can we do? He says, this is the work. And what, his point is, it's not work. You're not actually doing any work. What is the work that they're supposed to do to have this bread from heaven? Belief. It's about faith, not about works. It's about faith. He's telling them. They, they obviously know that Jesus is referring to himself when he says this, when he says, I can, be, I can give you this bread. I can give you eternal life because they follow that up with, 
um, asking him to perform a miracle, right? Well, if you say this is true, if you're, you have this bread, if you can give this to us, if you're the son of man, then, then prove it to us by performing another miracle like Moses did in the wilderness after the Exodus. That's what they say in verse 30. And then finally in verse 33, Jesus says plainly that the bread that, that he gives is not literal bread, but bread that comes from heaven that will give eternal life, that the bread is the one who has been sent. It should be clearly, like they're laying it out. They're even saying they know what, at least in part, what he's claiming because they're saying, prove it, do a miracle. Show us the things that Moses did. If, you, if, you're more, if you're as much as Moses, then do the things that Moses did. But they shouldn't get it. Mark 6 points clearly back to us that, that not only did they not get it, the people listening didn't get it, but even the disciples didn't fully understand what Christ was saying. They wanted to know how Jesus got across the sea. And Jesus didn't answer them. They demanded a sign from him about who he really was, and Jesus didn't give it to them. Although at other times he does signs, but he didn't give it to them. They wanted a miracle like the manna coming down from heaven in the time of Moses after the Exodus, after God had set all of his people free. But Jesus wasn't going to give it to them. Because Jesus saw into their hearts. Because Jesus understood their questions. He understood their intentions in a way that we never could. And like, Nic like, like Nicodemus, like the woman at the well, like the debates he has with the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus in this moment sees to the heart of it. He, he sees um, that these people really don't want him for who he is. They don't want him for who he is, but what he can do for them. That's what they want. For a lot of them, they probably wanted their political Messiah. And again, without a lot of context for you, they, they thought the Messiah was going to come from the line of David, the king that would rule forever over his kingdom. And that was true in a way, but they convinced themselves it was going to be a, a political, warlike Messiah who would conquer their enemies, be their king, be a miracle worker. But that's not exactly who Jesus is, is it? And so it comes down to the fact is, do they really want him for who he is, not who they want him to be. By the end, of, like as I said at the beginning, by the end of this chapter, after Jesus has really laid out, this is what it means to follow me, almost everyone leaves him. Again, basically everybody but just his 12 disciples are gone from crowds of five to 10,000 to 12. Why? Because to follow Christ is not about what he gives us but about getting him for who he is, not who we want him to be. To follow Christ is to lay down our own needs, our own wants, our own desires, listen, our own lives to follow him. Follow him because we believe in faith that he is enough. That he, in him, just him, that he is enough. And simply having their Messiah promising them himself and through him eternal life, apparently for them, is not enough. It's not enough. How many of you at some point in your life have seen God do something miraculous in your life? Or maybe in the life of someone near to you? Right? Seen God just do something miraculous. I'm guessing for, for most of the people in this room, at some point, we have seen God do something miraculous for someone else that we know really well or done something miraculous for us. I'm in that boat. I've seen God do things that are hard to explain. Absolutely miraculous. I see little hands like nods and little hands going all up over there. No one stand up and be like, me, 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 right? We're not going to do that today. But most of us have seen God do something miraculous at some point in our lives, redeem something or save something and provide in a way or, or just this experience with God that you just couldn't explain, that you didn't understand, that you knew, you just knew came from the Holy Spirit. And, and, and for me, I don't know for me, for me, those times were inc incredibly encouraging. Were they for you? When you got to see it happen or experience it happen, were they encouraging to you? I hope they were, man. Those things, some of those things that happened helped to kind of set me on fire for the Lord. So for you, in the moment when the miraculous thing happened, did it in some ways kind of strengthen your faith? I hope it did. It's okay that it did. It's a good thing that it did. I bet it did for you. But let me ask you a question. 
I think this is an important thing for us to, to kind of ponder. And we've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. But after that happened, after that miraculous thing happened that you just knew was from the Lord, how long did that spiritual high last? How long did it sustain your faith? Days? Weeks? Maybe. Maybe for some months. Maybe. But I think for the vast majority of us, the answer is that that spiritual high that came from that thing that you couldn't explain or that you called miraculous um, wore off pretty quickly. And not only wore off, but I, I bet for many of us, just like the Jews in the wilderness that saw God do incredible t- things in the time of Moses, it probably wasn't that long before you were struggling with the same things again, right? Had the same questions that you were struggling with again, wondering once again why you weren't better at this Christianity thing, why you were kind of stuck in the same patterns or why you weren't doing better, or maybe even wondering why God wasn't doing more in your life. Why God wasn't answering the prayer the way you thought he should. Why God wasn't showing himself to you or doing this thing or helping you in this way. Listen, Jesus did miraculous things. Seven great miracles in John. Two proved to us, two showed to them and to us who he truly is. And I know that those things excited and encouraged the people when they experienced them. Just look at the way the crowds responded to Jesus after he fed them just bread and some fish. But this passage makes it obvious that in the end, those things do not save people. They are not about salvation. They don't even sustain our faith. Did you hear that? Longing for experiences or the miraculous with God is is fine to an extent, but it does not sustain your faith. That is not what this thing is about. And if you're chasing an experience, if you're chasing a gift, if you're chasing the miraculous, if you're chasing answered prayer, I promise you're you're going to be let down because you're making it about you. And I say that because I love you, right? I'm not trying to come down on you or condemn you, but so often in our faith, we make it about us and that wrecks everything. When God says, make it about me and my glory, and you know why he says that? Because he loves you. He knows what you are capable of and he knows what he is capable of. It is his grace and his love. It says, no, follow me, make it about me and everything that you need will be provided because I am the answer. I am the answer to all of the longings of your heart. I am the answer to everything that you actually need. Come to me. I will sustain your faith. I will help you grow. I will help you find out who you were meant to be. So I want you to ask yourself today, honestly, come on, church, be honest. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Is it possible that there's at least a part of your faith, at least a part, that isn't really about loving Jesus, but, 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 what a, but it's about what God can, or maybe you even feel like he should do for you or give to you? Is there at least a part of you that thinks, man, Jesus, I would believe more deeply, I would follow more faithfully if you would just show me a miracle, if you would just give me a sign, if you would just do this thing for me, God, then, then I would follow you, then I would believe, then I would be sold out, then I would know. Crazy thing is, is that for most of us in the room, he's already done it. Most of us in this room, we're going to raise our hand when we said, I have seen or I have experienced a miraculous thing. Listen, we're just like the people that just saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a fish. And now, just the next day, hear me, the next day, Jesus says, I am he. And they say, well, why don't you prove it with a miracle? What? That's you. And that's me. This is who we are without Christ. God has already shown us who most of us, I know some of you aren't even believers in this room, and this is something that I I pray that God will show to you and reveal to you, and that you will get to have an experience with God, that you will know that God is real, that he loves you, that he is chasing after you, that he wants your redemption, he wants to wipe away all your sins, he wants to wipe away everything you ever did and make you new because he loves you through his son Jesus Christ, yes and amen. But most of us in this room have had that experience, have seen that experience, And we know the truth of it if we're honest with ourselves. If we don't make it about us, it's not enough. Miracles are great. Big experiences with God are amazing. God providing for us in miraculous ways, which he has done for my family, are super encouraging. 
And prayer that is answered can and does increase our faith, at least for a time. But in the end, those things aren't remotely what our faith is based on. If these are the things that we're chasing, or or somewhere inside of us expecting from God, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. What Jesus is trying to get them to understand is it's not about miracles. It's not about amazing experience. It's not about physical things. It's about this. It's about the fact that the father of all creation, the one who created all things, that created us in love, promised us, he promised to bring us redemption. And to answer that promise that he did not have to make, he sent his own son to come live the life, to show us what a perfect life looks like, to share, show us what a faithful life looks like. Jesus wasn't longing for an experience with the Father. He wanted to display the Father to the world because he knew how good he was. And he came and he displayed who he was, and he showed us what a perfect life was. And then because he was perfect, that's why he could go to the cross and die the death that we deserve to die, to take the punishment that we deserve, to take God's wrath for sin, because we want God to be wrathful to sin. We want our God to hate evil, and he does hate evil, and sin is evil. So Jesus went to the cross knowing we couldn't pay for it to pay for it for us because he loves us that much. Because he loves you that much. He calls you beloved. He wants you to come and believe and to know who he is so that you might experience who God really is to really know him. When I say in John to know and believe, this is not just know about him. This is to know him like this. To walk and to live in the truth that Jesus Christ died on that cross to save you. And then he was raised from the grave so that you, the old you could die and you could be raised as something new in him. That is the story of the gospel. Being raised to life. That is what the bread of life is about. Raising people to life. Life right now and an eternal life forever. It is about the one who brings life. It's not about the stuff but about God coming for us so that we might know him and have eternal life in him. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? Because you know what? For those who do believe, Jesus does promise things, doesn't he? He does promise peace and hope and joy, and purpose, and comfort, and so many other, answered prayer, so many other things for us followers. Yes, and amen, and ask for those things, and long for those things, and believe in those things. Yes, and amen, but in the end, they are not the thing. God's love shown clearly to us by his free gift of grace through his son, Jesus Christ, That is the thing. Seeing God's love for us, seeing who he is and following him with everything in us, that is the thing. Is it enough for you? To know and believe. That's why John wrote this. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired him so that you might truly know the one who can give you eternal life. Church, today, if if you know, if you know there's places in your heart that long for more of what God can do for you or give to you or something that you feel like you're owed from God, if if there's parts of your heart that are more true towards that than than that just simply long for him, I want to ask you to repent of that today. Do you know what repenting means? The simplest version of repenting means turn away from your own way and turn to God's way. Repent sounds like this big, like nasty word almost, repent and be saved. But listen, that's what it means. This is a good thing. You repent, you confess it to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry for the way I've done this thing. I don't want to do this thing like this anymore. I want to do it your way. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. God, I'm turning to you. This is what confession, this is what asking for forgiveness, this is what repentance is. I'm turning away from my way and I'm giving my life to you so I can do it your way. Ask God to redeem that to forgive that, to wash that away and make you new. Ask God to help you be fully satisfied simply in who he is. To be satisfied in what he has already done for you in Christ. 
and be satisfied in who you were created to be in Christ. Because that work, if you're a believer in here today, that work has already been done. And if you're not a believer in here today, simply through knowing Jesus Christ and believing, this work can, can, be, can begin in you. Because God longs for you to be in our family. All you need to do is believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will know him. This is what it means to live for the glory of God, church. This is where you'll not only find God, but you'll find what it means to be made new in God. And what you'll find is as you center your heart and your mind and your soul on, on, and your life, man, just your life on worshiping God for who he is and knowing him more and then becoming more a part of who you are and the Holy Spirit stirring in you for who your God is and what he has already done for you and who you are in him, what you'll find is that if you pursue him this way, that those other things, joy, peace, comfort, hope, listen, even provision and answered prayer will follow. They follow for those who believe in faith because God is a God who calls you beloved. He loves you. He wants to provide for you. He wants you to have peace. Jesus says, I died so that you might have peace. He wants these things for you, but he knows that you'll never find them chasing those things. You'll find them in him and just who he is and thankfulness to the creator of the universe and our savior. So church, who is Christ to you? I hope you'll answer that question today and whatever's there, that's not centered on that, that you'll give it to your God, to your Savior today, for he loves you. Let's pray. Oh God, what a beautiful, amazing truth. That you know these things. You, you know our weaknesses and our failures and our selfishness and our longing for the wrong things. And even God at times, I, I know for me, I know for others, even demanding things of you that we have no right to demand because you are God and we are not. Yet even though all of that's true, you came. Oh, God, Jesus, what a beautiful, amazing truth that you came to be our answer, to bring us salvation, whether we deserved it or not, because the truth is none of us deserve it. But you came to give us grace to save us from those things so that we might know you. And so Christ, I pray that you would help us today to know you, to long for you simply because of who you are. God, I also pray for peace for this church, for hope, for joy, for answered prayer. But more than all of that, I pray that we find those things in you. God, it's so hard. It's so hard to live this out every day, but we see so clearly from your word that you know it. So help us never to lose sight of this, to never lose hope, to, to never get discouraged, but to trust you simply because of who you are, because of what you've already accomplished on our behalf, because of who you've made us in you. Jesus, we do all of these things because you are worthy of worship, because you are the answer, because you are of the thing. That's why we pray these things in your name. Amen.